in terms of my working life, I'm basically arranged to work from the basement of our building, which is like basically to sequester myself from the toddler. So it's kind of very grim concrete room downstairs that I work in alone. Uh, it's just kind of like a little prison cell, basically. Oh, that's a really sad image. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I basically have to make a supply bag and then go into the, the prison cell downstairs until I finish my day's work and then come back up. But it's all in the service of FP, so, you know. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's daily podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon. On today's show, we're going to look at how the world's unrecognised breakaway regions are poised to handle the coronavirus pandemic. And later on, I'll be joined by Alessia Vartanian, an analyst with the International Crisis Group. But first this. The world is changing in ways that affect your life and your business. Do you have the intelligence you need? Now, FP is offering Insider. With a new FP Insider subscription, you will get all of FP's content plus exclusive access to data-driven intelligence, power maps that distill complex issues, in-depth special reports, and conference calls on the biggest stories and trends. Get global insight you can bank on. Subscribe to FP Insider today at foreignpolicy.com slash FP Insider. Before we go to today's interview, I decided to give my colleague Cameron Abadi a quick ring over Skype to see what the situation is like in Germany. Cam is a deputy editor with Foreign Policy and he's based in Berlin. I was wondering, what's it like for you being abroad during this? Are you glad to be in Germany and not in the U.S.? I mean, I, I moved here from New York, uh, and that's also where I grew up, and the situation seems scary. Uh, mm. And so on one hand, I'm, I'm, I'm happy not to be in the midst of that kind of situation with my kids. But more generally, my family and my parents still in the United States there in uh, Virginia, and I'm concerned about them. I don't know how I could even get to the United States right now. But that said, I will also say that for whatever reason, and, and I don't know if it's easy to describe the reason, um, Germany seems to be holding up till now better than other countries in Europe and certainly the United States. So that has been reassuring. And it sort of served as confirmation that moving here was, was maybe a good call. And why do you think it is that Germany seems to handling this better than the United States? You know, um, one other difference is that Germany did not, even to this point, has not used metaphors or language about war. I mean, pretty much every country these days now is describing the battle against coronavirus as a war against the virus, a war mm. to uh, save the public. Angela Merkel has not done that, and nor has anyone in the government used that language. Instead, she has appealed to people's civic responsibility to kind of follow the rules that are necessary. And that also goes hand in hand with the fact that the police presence has been less obvious than I think in other places. And, and yeah, there are historical reasons for that. And mm -hmm. yet these appeals have, have worked and, and maybe that's a sign of the society 
trusting its government uh, in a way, trusting each other, feeling some sense of social responsibility without the sort of language of fear and war. Um, people have been following the rules seemingly for the most part. Um, beyond that, yeah, the government, I think, is competent and it's been integrated. Like, I do think that there is a kind of federalism here that exists in that also exists in the United States. The the state governments are very strong here. And yeah. so federal, the national government can't make decisions on its own. And yet, I think like in the United States, that's come across as pretty dysfunctional. You've had states compete against each other for this medical equipment. You've had states trying to lag behind each other in avoiding coming up with these lockdowns. In Germany, you've had some positive effects of federalism. You've had the states have coordinated with each other. When when the government finally makes a decision, it can carry it out on even the local level because they're all integrated with the national level governments. And so I think that's, that's been part of the reason the government has been just competent and effective. And in contrast, the UK has gone full kind of World War II style national effort on this by calling up tens of thousands of volunteers and, you know, factories are now pivoting to produce ventilators and trying to evoke the collective spirit that we saw in the UK around World War II. I think we're learning a lot about ourselves, but also our countries and in, in how they're approaching this and how they're talking about this crisis. And it's very different across the board, which is fascinating. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and that's the best example. I mean, when it comes to World War II, from what I can tell, yeah, that's like a high point in the British national self-image. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, and that's um, very much not the case here. I think World War II was mentioned in one of Merkel's speeches a couple of weeks ago, and she said that this will be the hardest moment for the country since World War II. That's the context she wanted to put it in. But... It wasn't a battle, you know, and th- that was the mm. point. Beyond that, I think Germany's had its share of panic purchases at the supermarkets. Toilet paper is definitely the big item that people panic purchase. I don't know what that says about the country, but that's definitely kind of the, the big thing. And, and flour, flour and toilet paper, like the two items that most quickly sell out from supermarkets. I think people, their instinct is to make bread at home. My mom and my friends in Scotland have told me that um, it's the, the alcohol aisles in the supermarkets have all been clearing out. <laughs> so different priorities over there. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. That's exactly, I think people were joking about that, 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 that here as well. They were saying in France it was red wine and here it was toilet paper and whatever that whatever yeah. that says about, about the German culture. Uh, <laughs> you can draw your own conclusions. That was Cameron Abadi speaking over Skype. So before we go on to talk about the frozen conflicts, the unrecognized breakaway states of the South Caucasus, I want to set the scene a little bit because I realize that, you know, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Nagorno-Karabakh aren't places that make the front page very often. So just to set the scene a little bit, um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it ripped the lid off of ethnic tensions across Eurasia and nowhere more so than in the Caucasus. Separatist movements in Abkhazia and South Ossetia fought bitter wars to break away from the country of Georgia, while Nagorno-Karabakh region of Azerbaijan was seized by ethnic Armenian forces. 
To this day, none are recognized as independent states by the international community at large, and they remain largely cut off from the rest of the world. So it's not hard to see how they could become an Achilles heel during a pandemic. I went to Abkhazia in the spring of 2017, and it was truly one of the most mind-bending and surreal experiences of my life, to be in a place that kind of does function like a country, in that we went through a passport control, we crossed a border, we went to a foreign ministry to get our visas, but is also very much not a country. Those visas were just pieces of paper and they were never fixed in our passports. And it was also profoundly sad because Abkhazia is the most beautiful place I've ever been. Um, when you drive along the coast from from the border and into the Abkhaz territory, on, on the right-hand side, there are these huge alpine mountains, which in the spring when I was there were still capped with snow. And in the foreground, you had this gorgeous, green, lush, tropical vegetation. And then on the left-hand side, you had this glittering blue sea. Um, and it was spring, so even though there was snow on the mountains, it was already gloriously sunny. And then in the foreground, at either side of the road, are all of these houses which were abandoned in the war in the early 90s. Um, some still have the camouflage netting up, and almost all of them are riddled with bullet holes. So that's just to kind of set the scene about the the complicated places that we're talking about right now. But I'll hand it over now to our interview with Alessia Vartanyan, who I spoke with over Skype earlier, as she is the expert on this region. What are the healthcare systems like in these countries? You know, how stable are they? How easy is it for people to get quality care? Well, it's a major issue in all three places, especially in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. In many cases, uh, the local authorities, uh, they are not able really to guarantee some professional support to their doctors. And in many cases, when people approach local hospitals, they cannot get even basic health support. Uh, They were looking for support in some other places, like in Russia or in Georgia. In Nagorno-Karabakh, it's a bit different. There is a huge hospital, a beautiful building, uh, in the center of the capital, in Stepanakert. Uh, although there are still questions about some professional development. I heard some stories about, uh, like, for example, they have a very good equipment, but sometimes they just have doctors who are not able to use it. <laughs> so with this kind of the situation, and of course now it's uh, all kind of coming on, on surface, Mm -hmm. Uh, because of the pandemic and um, many people are really worried because if before a person who got sick that person could still travel to either to Russia or um, to Georgia now it's nearly impossible or very difficult to do and and these are really um, small places and uh, people usually kind of forget about them but now I think uh, this is the very time when they're not only isolated as usual (laughs) but they are actually even more isolated than before and they are in many cases left on their own and they have to their own without any kind of uh, proper vision how to for example prevent the spread or uh, what to do if actually they get confirmed cases i hope that will not happen but still you know actually there are lots of people who are worried what will we do actually if we have many cases like hundreds of them yeah yeah? most probably they will not be able to handle the crisis 
Are these regions getting any help from international aid agencies to prepare for a coronavirus outbreak? Actually, one of them, Apresia, produced a very good success story uh, in that sense because mm. uh, the local de facto authorities, uh, they reached out to the UN agencies uh, that work in Belize, in Georgia, and they asked for support and they received some basic medical supplies, something that uh, doctors need when they start receiving first patients. And it's extremely important thing because, I mean, if you don't have this outfit, then you, in many cases, refuse to even approach a person who has a problem. And uh, that was actually supported by the USID. And okay. uh, that was the first case in many, many years when uh, the U.S. provided this kind of support to this breakaway region. Um, the other thing that uh, the de facto authorities in Abkhazia were very lucky to do and very smart to do is uh, they actually um, received a, a group of specialists, including WHO professionals, and uh, they gave them full access everywhere. And they spent a couple of days, you know, visited different parts of the region, and they provided a very detailed and very useful guideline on basically what should be done uh, in the region. And they discussed these plans with the local de facto authorities. And just hours after that meeting, the local authorities they started taking first measures to prevent the spread. Mm. Um, unfortunately, that did not happen in South Ossetia. Um, the de facto authorities, they also received some information about this opportunity, but unfortunately, some people are still kind of stuck in their political differences and they are kind of looking for some reinforcement of their status. Basically, the issue was there, like how these guys will come. Will they travel from Russia or they will come from Georgia? Very traditional thing. Uh, the problem has been around for many, many years. Uh, anytime any international had a plan to visit uh, South Ossetia. And just because of that, the region is left with no aid mm. and with no instructions coming from real specialists, you know. So, mm. um, and in Nagorno-Karabakh, it's really very strange um guys there yesterday they had elections and they had the biggest turnout one could see crowds of people standing and waiting to cast a vote some people just uh, uh do not uh, understand uh, um, how serious it is serious it is and that in many cases they are actually it's not about them it's actually that they are posing a threat to some people who they love or who yeah. are their neighbors or yeah I mean, even in stable, established, recognized countries, it's been a difficult uphill battle with the kind of messaging on this to the public of saying, yes, 80% of cases are mild, but still please don't get it because you could pass it to your elderly, immune-compromised neighbors. And by the way, some young, healthy people still get it and get really sick. I mean, it sounds like the authorities in Nagorno-Karabakh are really not doing a good job of getting that message across to the public. You know, this is kind of a, um, turning into a political question as well, because uh, there were people um, mainly coming from Armenia who were calling, for example, postponed vote. But the local politicians, for some of them, unfortunately, uh, still politics were the priority. And some candidates, uh, they thought that after they invested so much into the campaign, they want to keep a momentum. 
Has Russia been providing aid to South Ossetia and Abkhazia? Um, I'm not sure that was enough for them. Um, now they say that they received some certain uh, medical supplies and also mm -hmm. they have two uh, ventilation stations. Obviously, it's not, not enough and obviously Moscow is dealing with its own problems and uh, they are probably not uh, in the top list, you know, of the priorities for Moscow. That was Alessia Vartanyan, an analyst with the International Crisis Group, speaking over Skype. So that's it from us today. And don't forget that we want to hear from you. Tell us how the pandemic is affecting you wherever you are in the world. Write to us at don'ttouchyourface at foreignpolicy.com. And don't forget to check out our coronavirus coverage over at foreignpolicy.com, where we have some of the world's leading experts breaking down what's happening and what could come next. Our show is produced by Darcy Palder and Dan Haverty and is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. I'm Amy McKinnon. Until next time, please remember to wash your hands thoroughly and don't touch your face. Thank you.